Section 26 of France in the 19th Century. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. France in the 19th Century by Elizabeth Latimer. Chapter 15. The Commune. Part 2. Here is the narrative of an English lady who was compelled to visit Paris on Easter Sunday, April 9, while it was under the administration of Cluseret. The streets she found for the most part silent and empty. There were a few omnibuses, filled with National Guards and men en blouse, and heavy ammunition wagons under the disorderly escort of men in motley uniforms, with guns and bayonets. Here and there were groups of patriots seated on the curbstones, playing pitch-farthing, known in France by the name of Bouchon. Their guns were resting quietly against the wall behind them, with, in many instances, a loaf of bread stuck on the bayonet. The sky was grey, the wind piercingly cold. The swarming life of Paris was hushed. There was no movement, and scarcely any sound. The shop-windows were shut, many were boarded up. From a few hung shabby red flags, but the very buildings looked dead. She says, quote, I felt bewildered. I could see no traces of the siege, and all my previous ideas of a revolution were dispersed. I passed several churches, not then closed, and being a Catholic, I entered the Madeleine. The precious articles on the altar had been removed by the priests, but except the words Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, deeply cut in the stone over the great door, the church had not, so far, been desecrated. I went also to Mass at Notre-Dame-des-Victoires, but before telling my cabman to drive me there, I hesitated, believing it to be in a bad part of the city. There are no bad parts, he said, except towards the Arch of Triumph and Neuilly. The rest of Paris is as quiet as a bird's nest. The church was very full of men as well as women. It was a solemn, devout crowd. Every woman wore a plain black dress. Every face was anxious, grave and grieved, but none looked frightened. As the aged priest who officiated read the first words of the gospel for the day, Be not afraid, ye seek Jesus who was crucified, the bombardment recommenced with a fearful roar, shaking the heavy leathern curtain over the church door, and rattling the glass in the great painted windows. I started, but got used to it after a while, and paid no more attention to it than did others. While I was in church, the citizen patriot who was my cab-driver had brought me three newspapers, one of them the journal edited by M. Rochefort, which said that it was earnestly to be hoped that the old assassin, M. Thiers, would soon be disposed of, that all men of heart were earnestly demanding more blood, and that blood must be given them. I also learned that the commune would erect a statue to Robespierre, out of the statues of kings, which were to be melted down for that purpose. In the Rue Saint-Honoré I met a lady whom I knew, returning from the flower-market with flowers in her hands. "'Then no one,' I said, pointing to these blooms, "'need be afraid in Paris.' "'No woman,' she answered, "'except of shells. "'But the men are all afraid, and in danger. "'They are suspected of wanting to get away, "'but they will be made to stay and to fight for the commune.' indeed profound gravity seemed expressed on all men's faces and as a body the patriots looked to me cold tired bored and hungry to say nothing of dirty which they looked to a man i had expressed a wish to see a barricade so we turned into a small street apparently closed in by a neatly built wall with holes in it through which i saw the mouths of cannon about this wall men were swarming both in and out of uniform they were all armed and two or three were members of the commune with red sashes and pistols stuck in them after the fashion of the theatre as i looked out of my cab window longing to see more 
a cheerful young woman with a pretty wan infant in her arms encouraged me to alight and a young man to whom she was talking a clean trim fair young fellow with a military look stepped forward and saluted me he seemed pleased at my admiration of the barricade and having handed a tin can to the young woman invited me to come inside thence i beheld the place vendome i had seen it last on august fifteenth eighteen sixty eight on the emperor's fete day filled with the glittering imperial troops i saw it again a wide empty waste bounded by four symmetrical barricades dotted with slouching figures whose clothes and arms seemed to encumber them i thanked my friend for his politeness and returned to my carriage the young woman smiled at me as much as to say is he not a fine fellow i thought he was and there may be other fine fellows as much out of place in the ruffianly mass with which they are associated in the rue de rivoli i saw a regiment marching out to engage the enemy among them were some villainous-looking faces they passed with little tramp and a good deal of shuffle shabby wretched silent i did not hear a laugh or an oath i did not see a violent gesture and hardly a smile that day the roistering roaring terrible reds as i saw them were weary dull men doing ill-directed work with plodding indifference i visited a lady of world-wide reputation who gave me a history of the past months in paris so brilliantly and epigrammatically that i was infinitely amused and carried away the drollest impressions of l'empire cluseret but her manner changed when i asked her what i should say to her friends in england tell them she said to fear everything and to hope very little we are a degraded people we deserve what we have got in the street i bought some daffodils from a woman who was tying them up in bunches as she put them into my hand her face seemed full of horror seeing probably an answering sympathy in my face she whispered it is said that they have shot the archbishop i did not believe it and i was right he was arrested but his doom was delayed for six weeks that night the churches were all closed there were no evening services that easter day i may add that i saw but one bonnet rouge which i had supposed would be the revolutionary headdress it was worn by an ill-looking ruffian who sat with his back to the quai his legs straddled across the footwalk his drunken head fallen forward on his naked hairy breast a broken pipe between his knees his doubled fists upon the stones at either side of him in the story of louis napoleon's abortive attempt at boulogne to incite france against louis philippe's government we were much indebted to the narrative of count joseph orsi one of the italians who from his earliest days had attended on his fortunes the same gentleman has given us an account of his own experiences during the days of the commune Quote, one could not help being struck by the contrasts presented at that time in paris itself destruction and death raging in some quarters cannon levelling its beautiful environs while at the same moment one could see its fashionable boulevards crowded with well-dressed people loitering and smiling as if nothing were going on the cafes indeed were ordered to close their doors at midnight but behind closed shutters went on gambling drinking and debauchery after spending a riotous night fast men and women considered it a joke to drive out to the arch of triumph and see how the fighting was going on the troops at versailles reinforced by the prisoners of war who had been returned from prussia began by the ninth of april to make active assaults on such forts as were held by the federals confusion and despair began to reign in the council of the commune unsuccessful in open warfare the managing committee tried to check the advance of the versaillais by deeds of violence and retaliation they arrested numerous hostages and the same night the palace of the archbishop was pillaged 
the prefect of police raoul rigaud issued a decree that every one suspected of being a réactionnaire that is a partisan of the national assembly should be at once arrested the delivery of letters was suspended gas was cut off and with the exception of a few places where lamp-posts were supplied with petroleum paris was in darkness the commune also issued a decree that while all men under sixty must enter its army women children and aged men could obtain passes to leave the city at the prefecture of police for two francs a head the prefecture was besieged by persons striving to get these passes many of whom camped out for forty-eight hours while waiting their turn in the midst of this confused pressure on the prefect of police count orsi took the resolution of visiting him as a known adherent of the former dynasty and a personal friend of the late emperor he did not feel himself safe he therefore took the bull by the horns and went to call on the terrible raoul rigaud in his stronghold he did not see him however but after struggling for three hours in the crowd of poor creatures who were waiting to pay their two francs and receive a passport he was admitted to the presence of his secretary ferré ferré was writing as his visitor was shown in and waving his pen made him stand where he could see him when he learned his name he said quote, your opinions are well known to us we also know that you have taken no active part against us we fight for what we believe to be just and fair we do not kill for the pleasure of killing but we must attain our end and we shall at any cost i recommend you to keep quiet and as you are an italian you shall not be molested however i must tell you that you have taken a very bold step in calling on me in this place your visit might have taken a different turn you may go your frank declaration has saved you on easter sunday as the english lady to whom allusion has been made was leaving paris the population in the neighbourhood of the place de greve was amusing itself by a public burning of the guillotine it was brought forth and placed beneath a statue of voltaire where it was consumed amid wild shouts of enthusiasm the freemasons and trades unions sent deputies to versailles to endeavour to negotiate between the contending parties m thiers promised amnesty to all communists who should lay down their arms except to those concerned in the deaths of general lecomte and thomas and he was also willing to give pay to national guards till trade and order should be restored but no persuasions would induce him to confer on paris municipal rights that were not given to other cities on the twelfth of may the commune issued the following decree quote, whereas the imperial column in the place vendome is a monument of barbarism a symbol of brute force and of false glory an encouragement to the military spirit a denial of international rights a permanent insult offered to the conquered by the conquerors a perpetual conspiracy against one of the great principles of the french republic namely fraternity the commune decrees thus the column of the place vendome shall be destroyed four days later this decree was carried into effect its execution was entrusted to the painter courbet who was one of the members of the commune he was a man who up to the age of fifty had taken no part in politics but had been wholly devoted to art his most celebrated pictures are the combat des serfs and the dame au perroquet he was a delightful companion beloved by artists and a personal friend of cluseret who had caused his name to be put upon the list of the members of the commune the column of the place vendome was one hundred and thirty-five feet high it was on the model of trajan's column at rome but one twelfth larger it was erected by napoleon i to celebrate the victories of the grand army in the campaign of eighteen o five he had caused it to be cast from cannon taken from the enemy when erected it was surmounted by a statue of napoleon in his imperial robes this at the restoration gave place to a white flag 
Under Louis-Philippe, Napoleon was replaced, but in his cocked hat and his redingote, but Louis-Napoleon restored the imperial statue. Quote, on May 16, says Count d'Orcy, a crowd collected at the barricades which separated the Place Vendôme from the Rue de la Paix and the Rue Castiglioni. To the Place Vendôme itself only a few persons had been admitted by tickets. At the four corners of the square were placed military bands. Ropes were fastened to the upper part of the column and worked by capstans. The monument fell with a tremendous crash, causing everything for a few moments to disappear in a blinding cloud of dust. To complete the disgrace of this savage act, the Commune advertised for tenders for the purchase of the column, which was to be sold in four separate lots. This injudicious and anti-national measure inspired the regular army at Versailles with a spirit of revenge, which led them on entering Paris to lose all self-possession, so that they dealt with the insurrection brutally and without discrimination." It would be curious to trace the history of the various members of the Council of the Commune. A few have been already alluded to, but the majority came forth out of obscurity, and their fate is as obscure. Eight were professional journalists. Among these were Rochefort, Arnoux, and Vermorel. Arnoux was probably the most moderate man in the Commune, and Vermorel was one of the very few who, when the Commune was at its last gasp, neither deserted nor disgraced it. He sprang on a barricade, crying, quote, I am here not to fight, but to die, end quote, and was shot down. Four were military men, of whom one was General Eudes, a draper's assistant, and one had been a private in the Army of Africa. Five were genuine working men, three of whom were fierce, ignorant cobblers from Belleville. The other two were Assy, a machinist, and Thiers, a silver chaser, one of the few honest men in the council. Three were not Frenchmen, although generals namely Dombrovsky, La Cecilia, and Da Costa, besides Cluseret, who claimed American citizenship. Rochefort was the son of a marquis who had been forced to write for bread. Delachuse was an ex-convict. Blanqui had spent two-thirds of his life in prison, having been engaged from his youth up in conspiracy. He was also at one period a government spy. Raoul Rigaud also had been a spy and an informer from his boyhood. Megui and Assy were under sentence for murder. Jourde was a medical student, one of the best men in the commune, and faithful to his trust as its finance minister. Florence, the scientist, a genuine enthusiast, we have seen was killed in the first skirmish with the Versaillais. Félix Pia was an arch-conspirator, but a very spirited and agreeable writer. He was elected in 1888 a deputy under the government of the Third Republic. Lullier had been a naval officer, but was dismissed from the service for insubordination. To such men, the best of them wholly without experience in the art of government, were confided the destinies of Paris, and as they hoped, of France. But their number dwindled from time to time, till hardly more than fifty were left around the council board, when about two weeks before the downfall of the Commune, twenty-two of this remainder resigned, some because they could not but foresee the coming crash, others because they would no longer take part in the violence and tyranny of their colleagues. In seven weeks the Commune had four successive heads of the War Department. General Eudes was the first. His rule lasted four days. Then came Cluseret. The Empire of Cluseret lasted three weeks. Then Cluseret was imprisoned, and Rossel was in place for nine days, when he resigned. On May 9, Delachuse, the ex-convict, became head of military affairs. He was killed two weeks later, when the Commune fell. Cluseret was deposed April 30, some said for ill success, some because he was a traitor and had communications with the enemy, but probably because he made himself unpopular 
by an order requiring his officers to put no more embroidery and gold lace on their uniforms than their rank entitled them to. Rossel, who succeeded Cluseret, was a real soldier, who tried in vain to organize the defense and to put experienced military men in command as subordinate generals. To do this he had to choose three out of five from men who were not Frenchmen. Dombrovsky and Roblovsky were Poles, and General Le Cecilia was an Italian. On May 9, after nine days of official life, he resigned, in the following extraordinary letter. Quote, Citizens, members of the Commune, having been charged by you with the War Department, I feel myself no longer capable of bearing the responsibility of a command where every one deliberates and nobody obeys. When it was necessary to organize the artillery, the Commandant of Artillery deliberated, but nothing was done. After a month's revolution, that service is carried on by only a very small number of volunteers. On my nomination to the ministry, I wanted to further the search for arms, the requisition for horses, the pursuit of refractory citizens. I asked help of the Commune. The Commune deliberated, but passed no resolutions. Later the Central Committee came and offered its services to the War Department. I accepted them in the most decisive manner, and delivered up to its members all the documents I had concerning its organization. Since then the Central Committee has been deliberating, and has done nothing. During this time the enemy multiplied his audacious attacks upon Fort Issy. Had I had the smallest military force at my command, I would have punished him for it. The garrison, badly commanded, took to flight. The officers deliberated, and sent away from the fort Captain Dumont, an energetic man who had been ordered to command them. Still deliberating, they evacuated the fort, after having stupidly talked of blowing it up, as difficult a thing for them to do as to defend it. My predecessor was wrong to remain, as he did, three weeks in such an absurd position. Enlightened by his example, and knowing that the strength of a revolutionist consists only in the clearness of his position, I have but two alternatives, either to break the chains which impede my actions, or to retire. I will not break my chains, because those chains are you and your weakness. I will not touch the sovereignty of the people. I retire, and have the honour to beg for a cell at Mazas. Russell. He did not obtain the cell at Mazas. He escaped from the vengeance of his colleagues, and was supposed to be in England or Switzerland, while in reality he had never quitted Paris. He was arrested two weeks after the fall of the Commune, disguised as a railroad employee. He was examined at the Luxembourg, and then taken, handcuffed, to Versailles, where he was shot at Satory, though M. Thiers, the President, made vain efforts to save him. The members of the Commune, who by the first week in May were reduced to fifty-three, met in the Hôtel de Ville in a vast room once hung with the portraits of sovereigns. The canvas of these pictures had been cut out, but the empty frame still hung upon the walls while at one end of the chamber was a statue of the Republic dressed in red flags, and bearing the inscription, War to Tyrants. Reporters were not admitted, and spectators could be brought in only by favour of some member. The members sat upon red velvet chairs, each girt with his red scarf of office, trimmed with heavy bullion fringe. The chairs were placed round a long table, on which was stationary for the members' use, carafes of water, and sugar for eau sucrée. It was an awe-inspiring assembly, quote, for the men who talked held a city of two millions of inhabitants in their hands, and were free to put into practice any or all of the amazing theories that might come into their heads. Their speeches, however, were brief. They were not wordy, as they might have been if reporters had been present. Most of them wore uniforms profusely decorated with gold lace, end quote, and, says an Englishman who saw them in their seats, quote, one had only to look in their faces to judge the whole truth in connection with the commune. 
its causes, its prospects, and its signification. A citizen whom I had heard of as most hotly in favour of press freedom proposed in my hearing that all journals in Paris should be suppressed save those that were edited by members of the Council of the Commune. That there were three or four earnest men among them, no one can dispute. But as to the rest, I can only say that if they were zealous patriots devoted to their country's good, they did not, when I saw them, look like it." In the first week of May the Commune decreed the destruction of M. Thiers's beautiful home in the Rue Saint-Georges. The house was filled with objects of art and with documents of historical interest which he had gathered while writing his history of the Revolution, the Consulate, and the First Empire. The Commune had removed some of these precious things and sold them to dealers, from whom many were afterwards recovered. But the mob which assembled to execute the decree of destruction was eager to consume everything that was left. In the courtyard were scattered books and pictures waiting to feed the flames. Quote, the men busy at the work looked, says an Englishman, like demons in the red flame. I turned away, thinking not of the man of politics, but of the historian, of the house where he had thought and worked, of the books that he had treasured on his shelves, of the favourite chair that had been burned upon his hearthstone. I thought of all the dumb witnesses of a long and laborious life dispersed, of all the memories those rooms contained, destroyed." On the 16th of May, the day of the destruction of the column in the Place Vendôme, a great patriotic concert was given in the Palace of the Tuileries, which was thronged, but, quote, by that date, discord and despair were in the Council of the Commune, and its most respectable members had sent in their resignation. Versailles everywhere was gaining ground. The fort of Vauve was taken. That of Montrouge had been dismantled, and breaches were opened in the city walls. The leaders of the insurrection lost their senses, and gave way to every species of madness and folly. The army of Versailles soon entered the city from different points. The fight was desperate, the carnage frightful. Dombrowski, the only general of ability, was killed early in the struggle. Barricades were in almost every street. Prisoners on both sides were shot without mercy. The communists set fire to the Tuileries, the Hôtel de Ville, the Ministry of Finance, the Palace of the Legion of Honour. The rest of the story is all blood and horror. The most pathetic part of it is the murder of the hostages, which took place on the morning of May 24, and which cannot be told in this chapter. The desperate leaders of the Commune had determined that if they must perish, Paris itself should be their funeral pyre. It was General Eudes who organized the band of incendiaries called Petroleuses, and gave out the petroleum. It was Félix Piat, it was said, who laid a train of gunpowder to blow up the Invalides, while another member of the Commune served out explosives. On the night of May 24, the Hôtel de Ville was in flames. The smoke, at times a deep red, enveloped everything. The air was laden with the nauseous odours of petroleum. The Tuileries, the Palace of the Legion of Honour, the Ministry of War, and the Treasury were flaming like the craters of a great volcano. We have heard much of petroleurs. They appear to have worked among private houses in the more open parts of the city. Here is a picture of one seen by an Englishman, quote, she walked with a rapid step under the shadow of a wall. She was poorly dressed, her age was between forty and fifty, her head was bound with a red-checked handkerchief, from which fell meshes of coarse, uncombed hair. Her face was red, her eyes blurred, and she moved with her eyes bent down to the ground. Her right hand was in her pocket, in the other she held one of the high, narrow tin cans in which milk is carried in Paris, but which now contained petroleum. The street seemed deserted. She stopped and consulted a dirty bit of paper which she held in her hand, paused a moment before the grated entrance to a cellar, and then went on her way steadily, without haste. 
an hour later that house was burning to the ground sometimes these wretched women led little children by the hand who were carrying bottles of petroleum there was a veritable army of these incendiaries composed mainly of the dregs of society this army had its chiefs and each detachment was charged with firing a quarter the orders for the conflagration of public edifices bore the stamp of the commune and that of the central committee of the national guard also the seal of the war delegate for private houses less ceremony was used small tickets of the size of postage stamps were pasted on the walls of the doomed houses with the letters b p b bon pour brûler some of these tickets were square others oval with a bacchant's head upon them a petroleuse was to receive ten francs for every house which she set on fire all the sewers beneath paris had been strewn with torpedoes bombs and inflammable materials connected with electric wires Quote, the reactionary quarters shall be blown up was the announced intention of the commune mercifully these arrangements had not been completed when the versailles troops obtained the mastery almost the first thing done was to send sappers and miners underground to cut the wires that connected electric currents with inflammable material in all parts of the city the catacombs that underlie the eastern part of paris were included in the incendiary arrangement when paris was at last in safety and the commune subdued would that it had been only the guilty on whom the great and awful vengeance fell. End of section twenty six. End of chapter fifteen.